Thank you, Tim. We appreciate your great song there for us. Well, today we are continuing in a, a brief series focusing on the Good Shepherd with John 10 and Psalm 23 serving as our foundational text. We've already looked at the shepherd's solution for worry and for waywardness, and today we're going to consider the shepherd's solace in valleys. As we come to to, to Psalm 23 and verse 4, there's a new paragraph, and with it, there's a change in tone. And I want to just read that this one verse to you from a very familiar translation, the New King James Version. And let's listen to this uh, incredible verse. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that this verse is included in your word to bring us such encouragement and comfort. And I that is included in this verse. Allow me to accurately reflect the truth that is included in this verse according to your heart and your spirit. And I pray, Lord, that you would open the ears and the eyes of those that are gathered here today to bring them the encouragement and the the strength that they need in dealing with the valleys that many may be going through today or about to go through. And we we thank you for what, that you are good, that you are the good shepherd and that you're good no matter what. And we praise you for that. And Lord, may, may that be reinforced in our hearts today for your glory through Christ. Amen. Now, David said, I walk... Through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, in the, the, the Hebrew literally says, Though I walk through the valley of dark darkness. The word death is not actually in the, the translation. Though that idea is implied. You say, well, why does, why does David use this terminology. Well, in Palestine, it was common for the shepherds to keep their sheep in the lowlands during the the winter, and then in the spring, they would lead their sheep to the highlands in search of greener pastures. But that trip to the highlands was often very treacherous because the, the water rushing down but from the melting snows and the spring rains would often deepen existing ravines and cut new gullies in the foothills and change the landscape. And the, the footing there often became very treacherous. Uh, it's a picture of a deep, narrow canyon where the sun may only hit the bottom when it's, when it's directly overhead at noon. Otherwise, all the time, it's, it's dark and, and it's mysterious and it's dangerous. It's threatening. And you see, in the Bible, valleys are often a metaphor for, for trials, for adversity, for pain, 
and suffering. And the valley spoken of here in Psalm 23 is a picture of the the dark, the difficult, the uncertain, threatening times in life. Now let me call your attention to just to five characteristics of valleys. See, valleys are inevitable. Verse 4 says, though I walk through the valley. You see, it's not a matter of if, it's when. It's going to happen. You can count on it. And you know, right here in this room, most of us, we're either coming out of a valley, we're in a valley, or we're headed for a valley. That's the nature of life. And it, it, you know, it's like driving through West Virginia. Every, after every mountaintop, there's a valley. And you go back and you're on a mountaintop, but you got another valley coming. That's, that's life. And, and you're going to have difficulty and disappointment and discouragement in life. And there are going to be times of frustration and failure and fatigue. There will be times of suffering and sorrow and sickness. Valleys are inevitable. And valleys are indiscriminate. No one is immune. No one's insulated from pain and sorrow. No one gets to skate through life problem-free. Everybody has problems, good people and bad. Christians do go through deep darkness. Christians do face adversity. In fact, this psalm is written to the family of God as an encouragement for those times when we go through the valley. Christians can lose their job. Christians can contract cancer. Christians can lose a spouse or a child. Christians do go through dark valleys. And the Bible is clear that bad things do happen in everyone's life. That they're universal, they're indiscriminate. Jesus says in Matthew 5.45, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You know, when we, we hit a valley, we're often tempted to say, you know, why me? We should ask, why not me? All of us. See, no one's immune. And, and remember, this is not heaven. Life is a boot camp. Life is a trial. God is in the process of training us, and he has purposes in what he is doing. It's not perfect here. There will be problems and difficulties. Valleys are unpredictable. In a time of great calamity, the prophet Jeremiah said in in Jeremiah 4.20, he says, Disaster follows disaster. Suddenly, my tent are devastated. You see, you know that it's coming. You just don't know when. You can't predict it. You can't plan it. uh, You can't schedule it. And and almost always, it comes at the worst time. I mean, have you ever had a flat tire at a good time? I mean, when does your heat go out? You know, on the coldest day of the year, right? That, that's the way it is. And, and, and valleys come suddenly, see, when you don't expect them. Disaster follows disaster. You know, see, adversity 
comes in multiples, it seems. One thing happening seems to unleash a whole string of bad things oftentimes in our lives. See, valleys are just unpredictable. And valleys are temporary. David says, though I walk through the valley. A valley is not something you stay in your entire life, unless it stays valley. It's something you go through, a circumstance, a situation. It's for a season. They're not permanent. They're temporary. And when you're in a valley, you you often think, well, it's a dead end. But no, it's it's like a tunnel. You go in, uh, there's a time in darkness, and then you emerge on the other end. Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16, the apostle Paul says this, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Now, I want to make sure that you get, you see the, the comparison here. Let's look at it as a kind of little a chart here. Next, okay. Uh, look at, it's the outer man as opposed to the inner man. It's what is decaying, the outer man. But on the inside, the inner man is being renewed. And what's happening? It's momentary. It's temporary. Uh, as, as opposed to what we are going to experience, which is eternal. And, and the things that we're fixed, uh, uh, experiencing today are light in comparison to the importance and the weight of eternity. But yes, we, affect, we are experiencing affliction now, but we are going to experience glory. This is a beautiful picture here. Adversity won't last. It's temporal. Now, you don't have a slot for this one, but I, could, I, I needed this one really bad to add to your list, but valleys are mysterious. When, it, when adversity hits, there's a kind of a denial. You know, this can't be happening to me. Um, there must be some mistake. But as re- reality grips us, we begin to ask other questions like, you know, why is this happening to me? Uh, What did I do to deserve this? Where is God in all of this? See, what we're doing, we're trying to make sense of it all. We're we're thinking there's got to be a reason for what I am am going through. And we kind of get caught up in an unending series of questions. But our repetitive, circular reasoning rarely gives us a satisfactory answer. And, And you see... God is seeking to use suffering for our benefit. But we have an enemy that is seeking to use our suffering for our detriment. And he is trying to convince us, you see, that, and create doubts in our hearts about ourselves, about the character of God. He's trying to convince us that God is treating us unfairly. So in order to find answers to unanswerable questions... We tend to fill in the gaps. We, we make our own answers. And we, we tend to, to blame ourselves or others or Satan 
or God, uh, we, we, we think uh, that if we understand the source of our adversity, somehow we'll have some control over it. See, we're, we're looking for understanding. We're looking for control over our situation. Uh, to put it simply, in the face of mystery, we try to play God and unscrew the inscrutable. We want to have an answer, a pat answer, but oftentimes we don't have an answer. That's why we're experiencing what we're experiencing. Here's the thing. We may not understand why, but we can know at the bottom line that God is at work for our good, for our benefit in the midst of it all. We don't know the specifics of it, but we can know generally that God is doing that. And what is the, what is the shepherd's solace for the dark valleys of life? Well, the answer is this. It's a proper attitude and perspective on life. Adversity can be our greatest motivation for growth, or it can be our deadliest means of discouragement. It can be beneficial or it can be destructive. I mean, it, it, and the difference is, is how we perceive it, how we look at it, our perspective, our attitude about it as we go through it. And I want you to, I want you to read Psalm 23 verse 4 with the idea of perspective, the idea of attitude. Listen to David's attitude. Listen to his perspective. Verse 4, yea. Starts off positive. <laughs> yay, yeah, yeah, no, yay, yay. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Listen, yeah, I know that adversity is inevitable. I'm not immune to it, it's indiscriminate. I know that it's unpredictable. I, I can't always understand why it's mysterious. But I know that whatever I will face, that you are there with me. And I know that it's temporary. I'm just going through this dark valley for a while. It's not going to last forever. And I, in the process, I don't have to fear being overcome by evil. Now listen, that is, that is a realistic perspective on life. That's a, that is a realistic perspective on life. That's a healthy perspective on life. And it's perfectly consistent with what Jesus says in John 16 and verse 33. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. It's inevitable. It's indiscriminate. It's, it's unpredictable. It's, it's temporal. It's in this world, only in this world. It's mysterious. We live in a fallen, cursed, and broken world, and because of that, we will have trouble. He says, but take heart. You see, I have overcome the world. Jesus doesn't offer us comfort by saying, I'm going to take away all your troubles he offers us comfort by assuring us that he is greater than any adversity that we will ever face. 
that we can triumph over that as we go through it. That's the hope and that's the comfort that he gives us. That's the right perspective. And so often people talk to me about their troubles. It's why does God allow this to happen? Why do I have to go through this? But God is taking you through it for a purpose. And he's shaping you and making your character different. You see, though we walk through the dark valley, there are three ways that we can find solace in the shepherd's character. And the first is this. We can find solace in the shepherd's compelling purposes. Compelling purposes. Now, the apostle Peter wrote to believers who were experiencing severe persecution because of their faith in Christ. And see, Peter is, is, is seeking to encouraging them, to encourage them by reminding them of the greatness of the eternal and imperishable reward that they have waiting for them in heaven. And he's, again, he's telling them this, this is just temporary. And there is something greater beyond. And so he says in verse 6, he says this. In this, you greatly, this is 1 Peter chapter 1 in verse 6. He says, in this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have seen him, you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Now, Let me ask you, how can Peter honestly say in verse 6 that we greatly rejoice though we are distressed by various trials? Doesn't that almost sound like a contradiction? We're rejoicing though we're distressed by various trials? Well, Well, here's why he can say that. You see, in the course of our Christian growth, trials are often necessary for a little while. Trials are necessary for our spiritual growth. And that's why I I chose that phrase, compelling purposes. You know, the root word of compel is pel. It it literally means to, to drive. It means to force. It means to necessitate. And then you add that prefix, calm, with means together. It, it, it's saying Jesus forces us, drives us through difficult situations with him for the purpose of affecting, changing our character. See, God wants to change your character. It's an amazing thing. What are some of the purposes? Of well, there are many. And remember, we don't often understand the specific reasons that we're always going through something. But let me call your attention to three general purposes that the Bible clearly demonstrates that God is about. 
First of all, valleys can purify faith. Uh, Look at verse 7. So that the proof of your faith, now underline that in your thinking, if not on your paper, the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. Now here Peter is using one of the most common metaphors to describe the way that adversity works in our life. And he pictures our faith as precious metal that is being refined. When you, when you mine gold, it comes out of the ground in ore. And it's mixed with rocks and dirt and all kinds of other things. And it has to be extracted. It has to be separated. In order to do that, then you put it into the furnace. And it's heated to high temperatures. As that is that gold ore is heated, the gold and the ore and the impurities begin to separate. The, the gold is heavier. It goes to the bottom. The impurities come to the top and they're scraped off. This has to be repeated. It's a refinement process. The more you heat it, the more of the impurities are scraped off, the purer the product that you have. And you see, that's a picture of our lives. We come to Christ and we have a faith, but that new faith is mixed with all kinds of other stuff. Wrong beliefs, wrong attitudes, wrong behaviors. And God begins the work of purifying our faith. And the fire that he uses to purify our faith are trials. The the difficulties, the adversities that we face. And in the midst of adversity, what happens? Our faith begins to be separated from all the other things that are there. We begin to see what's really valuable, what really matters, what's really true. The essentials. And God begins to show us what's really, what really matters. And there's a separation, a purifying of that faith, of our nature, our character. When everything's going great, see, you don't perceive your need for God. When you walk through the valley, you get on your knees. You you begin to separate, really, what matters, what's, what's worthwhile. And see, when you're in a trial, all your amusements, they seem worthless. All of a sudden, prayer seems so incredibly valuable. It's amazing how it works. Who of us would choose the adversity? We don't choose it. We wouldn't choose it. We wouldn't choose it. We'd do anything possible to avoid it. So God necessitates that we go through the trial so that he can purify our faith. You see, God's more, he's more interested in your character than he is your comfort and your convenience. Our society and our world today, we're all about, you know, we want to go to a church where they talk about your comfort and your convenience and your wealth and your prosperity and and how God's going to help you. But God is more interested in your holiness than he is in your happiness. Happiness doesn't last, but friends, holiness does. And by the way, holiness is really the means to true happiness. He wants to make you like Jesus Christ. He wants to develop the character of Christ in you. And and that brings us to the next thing. Valleys can glorify Jesus.
last part of verse 7. Now remember, he's speaking here about a proven faith, a faith that has been tested and shown to be real. He says this proven faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, when our faith is is proven to be genuine through trials, it brings honor and glory to God. And the word glory means to give honor or distinction to. The Old Testament word translated glory comes from the root that means to be heavy. And if something is heavy, it carries a lot of weight. It's important. It's valuable. It's to be honored. It it separates it, distinguishes it from, from all others. Now, don't miss Peter's point here. God is glorified through our suffering because it shows, it reveals the nature of God, the, the greater value, the greater weight, the greater importance of God himself and what God has hold, holds out for us as important. Now, the Bible contains many examples of suffering demonstrating the glory of God. Uh, but let's just take a couple from the Gospel of John. In John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples come across a man who has who has been blind since birth. And the disciples, reflecting upon you know, the, the common belief of their day, they ask Jesus, well, was his sin... Uh, can we go back on the, on the slide, please? Okay. Uh, he, he asked this question. Was, was this man's sin... Or is this man blind because of his sin... Or was this man blind because of his parents' sin? And so Jesus then answers the question in verse 3, and he says, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. You see, when, when Jesus calls this man who had been born blind to see, suddenly everybody saw the glory of of God. Now, is that a, 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 an incredible thing to try to grasp? That this man spent his life in blindness so that the world, so that you here today even, be the glory of God? It's mysterious, isn't it? We don't understand what, what God is doing, how he does it. But God certainly was glorified through this. And later in John chapter 11, we learn that there was a man by the name of Lazarus who was sick. He was a close friend of Jesus. In fact, Jesus knew that he was sick and he intentionally waited when he was called to come and help him. He intentionally waited until after Lazarus died. Then when he finally arrives at his home in Bethany, Jesus finds this family Grieving deeply. This adversity was a great mystery to Lazarus' sisters, to to Mary and Martha. They simply cannot understand why Jesus did not come. They said, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. It's a mystery to them. They're, They're struggling with this along with the grief that they're experiencing. And you see... 
They're thinking, well, certainly your closest friends should be the exception, right? No. Adversity is inevitable. It's indiscriminate. It's unpredictable. But thankfully, it's temporary. Because Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And see, Jesus had a compelling purpose that necessitated that his friend Lazarus die, that he walked through the valley of the shadow of death. And he allowed Mary and Martha to experience the anguish of this loss. But keep in mind, as, as members of his flock, we never go through the dark valley alone. And when Jesus saw Mary and Martha weeping, he heard their, their grief. Jesus wept. His heart was troubled. Now, he's not grieving over Lazarus because he's going to resurrect him in just a minute. But he is grieving over the hearts of these that are still walking through the valley, the shadow of death. Those who are still experiencing the grief. And see, it's still the same today. God's heart is not, is not troubled over the sheep that he calls to himself. They're there with him. But his heart still goes out to those who are still walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Those who are still experiencing the grief. And his heart is broken over the, the sin that necessitated all of the suffering and adversity in our lives. We go through it with him. And... That happened so that we could see that Jesus Christ has power and authority over sin and death. And that not only does he have power to raise Lazarus, he has the power to raise us. You know, we could say, you know, I'm thankful for the scars. Because apart from the scars, I wouldn't know your heart. I wouldn't know who you really are. Suffering can glorify God. Valleys can produce joy. In verse 8, Peter continues, he says, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him. What's happening? They have faith. Their faith has grown. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. See, he's he's just telling them that you can now rejoice because your faith has been purified and now you have the absolute confidence of the salvation of your soul, the eternal salvation and the hope of the future. Proven faith glorifies Christ, but it also produces joy in our heart because it gives us this incredible confidence, this assurance as we go through life. Secondly, we can find solace in the shepherd's continual presence. David says, I I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Now, when you truly believe that the shepherd is with you, then you can say, I will fear no evil. What happens when we fear evil? Well, it results, in, it results in discouragement. It results in defeat. Think about the word discouragement. I mean, the root word is courage. I mean, the very opposite of fear, right? 
So when you're discouraged, you lose the courage in your life. And when you lose the courage, well, then you just give up. You feel defeated. And if you're encouraged, why, you're filled with courage. And David says, I'm filled with courage. Therefore, I will will not fear, but I will be confident in the Lord. I will not be afraid. You see, discouragement is a choice. When you're discouraged, you're choosing to look at all the negatives. You're choosing to look at your circumstances. But when you're encouraged, you're looking at Christ. You're looking at his, his presence and his power and his grace. See, it's, it's always a matter of perspective. It's always a matter of attitude when you're in the dark valley. And you know what? You can choose to change that your perspective by God's grace because God wants you to trust him. You say, how do, I, how do I choose not to be discouraged? Friends, it's simply by focusing on the truth of God's character and his presence rather than on your problem. Now think about this. You can put two people in the very same circumstances. There's chaos, tragedy, crisis, One of them is devastated by it, and the other is strengthened by it. What's the difference? Perspective, attitude, faith. You see, human energy runs out. You can make it for so long on your own strength. But then what happens? You fall apart, you get discouraged. And, and I'll tell you, that I believe that's one of the reasons that disaster follows disaster. Because we, we think we can handle it. Well, God says, no, I got another little disaster right here after this one. You're going to see you don't have the strength to do this. You don't have the ability on your own to do this. And human endurance has an end. And when you're in the valley, friend, you need some power that is greater than your own. If you think you can make it on your own, think again. David says, I will not fear because you are with me. You are with me. And let me just remind you this. There's a, there's a change, a, a big change that comes in verse 4. Not only in tone, but in language. The first part of the psalm, all the pronouns are in the third person. He talks about God. He leads me beside still waters. He guides me into green pastures. He restores my soul. David talks about God. But when he gets into the valley, he talks to God. He becomes second person. He he says, you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. Friends, valleys bring us face to face with God. See, it's one thing to talk about God. It's another thing to talk to God. When you get in the valley, you want you want a personal, intimate relationship with God. You want to get a grip on God himself. You you don't want religion. You want a relationship. You want want God. You'll be like Job. You say, oh, if I could just reach up into heaven and, and bring God down, if I could get him face to face. Well, friends, that's what trials do if you're open. Trials will bring you face to face with God. 
Any mature believer will tell you that the times that they, that they were closest to God were those in face-to-face encounters that happened only in the valley. I'll read to you the testimony of a lady who once attended our church. She and her family, they've moved away. But she gave me this and, and gave me permission to use it. She says this, like a lot of people in my life, like a lot of people, my life has been filled with so much adversity. I grew up experiencing major problems, which I took with me into adulthood. My life has been filled with extreme emptiness, fear, and guilt. No matter what I tried, I couldn't find fulfillment in life or escape my problems. The fact that nothing worked or even helped made me feel even more hopeless. I turned to alcohol to try to numb the feelings I had and to try to feel in control of my life. But instead, alcohol began to control my life, and I started to self-destruct. I had a glimmer of hope. I, I thought that when I got married that I would be able to overcome my problems and that my family would fill a void in my life. When I finally realized that that was not going to work either, I became extremely anxious and depressed. My life was a mess, and I was out of control. I began to to lean more heavily on alcohol. I came to a place where I didn't feel normal until I was drunk. This, along with everything else that I was going through in my life, was ruining my relationship with my husband and with the rest of my family. I went through all the self-help programs and clinics that you can imagine. I even tried church for the sake of my children and tried to be a, quote, decent person, end quote. I know now that the church that I was attending had little to offer because they didn't teach the Bible. In spite of my efforts, my husband and I separated. The divorce papers were all but signed, sealed, and delivered. It was a dark time in our family, and I was at the lowest point of my life. I felt that even God couldn't help me. But the good shepherd walked with me through the dark valley. Even though I I couldn't see the way that he led me, I started attending a Baptist church that was this church. I started hearing testimonies about how God had changed people's lives. God was slowly drawing me to himself. Then someone explained to me the way of salvation, and I walked forward and received Jesus Christ as my personal Savior and Lord. I became totally dependent on him at that point. I asked him to free me from the desire to drink, and he delivered me from the strong grip of alcoholism. He healed my marriage and my family. He restored more than I could have ever imagined. The Good Shepherd has not only allowed me to be reconciled with my immediate family, but with my extended family as well. Now Jesus is truly my Savior. By his grace, I have been, a, I've been able to experience the joy of true forgiveness. My life here is never going to be perfect, and I, and, but I have the peace I never thought possible. I know that no matter what happens, I am never alone. I fear no evil because he is with me. We can find solace in the shepherd's continual presence. And finally, we can find solace and the presence comforting protection. David says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Remember, sheep are basically defenseless. They don't have sharp teeth or, or claws. They don't have blazing speed. 
They are dependent on the shepherd for their protection. And and the rod and the staff were two basic tools that the shepherd used to guide and to protect his sheep. A rod was a was just a was a, just a, a kind of a bat, a big bat. Had a big head on it, hardwood. Usually had a, a bone or stone protruding from it. And the shepherds were became very skilled at, at hurling that like a like a missile at anything that would attack the sheep. You may remember that that David killed a bear and a lion uh, in protecting his sheep. And, and really, what he, the shepherd is simply saying, is, as God's saying, is, I'm going to go through the valley with you, and I'll be there to protect you, to defend you. See, when you're going through the dark valley, God is not sitting up in heaven uh, apathetically watching your life. He is there with you. He knows exactly what you are going through, and he really cares about what is happening in your life. Uh, The the good shepherd fights for you. There are battles that the sheep don't even know about. There are spiritual battles that are raging in your life that you have no clue about. You can't see them. You don't even know what's happening. But God is there at work in your life in the midst of that. And there are things happening, circumstances you don't have a clue about. But let me tell you, God's in control of it all. And he is there protecting you in the midst of it all. And you can take comfort in that reality. A staff is that's the thing we're most familiar with. It's that long stick that has the crook at the end of it. The shepherd used that to, to guide his sheep. He would use it to actually draw them closer to themselves as he would inspect them for injuries and for uh, insects and so forth. He would pull off of them. Uh, he used that to rescue them. When they got into a thicket, he reached that in there, pulled those sheep out. Even when they fell down in the ravine, he would hook that under their, their legs and pull them up. It was, just a, it was just a picture of God's constant rescuing, delivering, protecting, guiding. You see, David says, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't say, I walk through the valley of death. I walk through a shadow. See, for the believer, death is but a shadow. Yes, we're all going to see that dark darkness. But with the shepherd, we're going to go through it with him and immediately emerge into the light of the highlands. And then as we look back, all of our difficulties, all of our struggles are just going to suddenly seem inconsequential. But right now, the light of Jesus Christ, the grace of Jesus Christ is seen most clearly in the light, in the dark valleys. We see his glory there. It's just a shadow. See, if you look to the world, you will be depressed. Uh, excuse me, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you will be depressed. But if you look to the shepherd, you will be at rest. It all depends, you see. On how you look at it. So what does what does what does he tell us to do? Turn your eyes upon Jesus, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory 
and grace. Let's pray.